in both services, it's always this group over here that stays and continues talking. I love it. What's wrong with you people over here on this side? <laughs> no, that's an enjoyable thing to see. Well, we are in the middle of a series um, in Philippians where we're looking at the sacrifice that's involved in generosity. In the last series, we talked about our financial generosity. This uh, series, we're talking about what does it mean to live out our faith, give ourselves to others. So it's more than money. It's about us and our resources, our, our person, our time, moving into the lives of people. And so we began last week asking the question, what does it mean to be a citizen of heaven? What does that mean? You may remember last week we started with the idea, based on the beginning of his prayer, that involves the idea of partnership. If you look at his prayer in chapter 1, verse 4, well, in verse 3, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Isn't that a great prayer? I always pray with joy. By the way, that's, that's how we feel when we pray for you. That's how I feel when I pray in the morning for you. I pray with joy for you because of your partnership. We've talked more than once as a staff and elders that it's something really wonderful about not being alone on this, that we are partners together for the sake of the gospel. We have a common, have a common Lord, a common baptism, a common spirit, a common goal to see our friends and neighbors come to believe and know what we know to be true, the realities that we live in now. We're actually going to come back to that because that appears a little bit later on in chapter 2. We'll get to it by the end of the sermon. So last week I concluded my time and I asked a question about suffering. <clears throat> Here's a question. Let me refresh your memory. Could it be that suffering is God's primary way of showcasing his glory? Could it be that suffering is the primary way that God showcases his glory, his love, his compassion? You know, when you think about it, um, we, we have some things in common with each other. I have some things in common with you, maybe more with you, less with you, but, but they're all different. So some of you are, God has blessed to make you wealthy. You're retired and you have plenty of resources. And I'm not complaining at all because I'm happy where I am. But I don't share some of that. Some of you uh, are poorer than I am, poor, poorer than I am. And, and that's okay. I don't share that either because I'm not there. Some of you work in the healthcare profession. I don't. Don't know much about it at all, other than I get a little frustrated over my insurance. It's about the closest I know. <laughs> and uh, some of you are engineers and architects, and you do all kinds of things that when I get a chance to listen to you, I learn a lot, and I'm intrigued by it. But I don't really have that in common with you, okay? Um, I have in common with Mark that we both love theology. So, you know, Mark and I talk all the time. And I suspect that you find points of connection with people, and it's different with every person how you connect. But the one thing we all have in common is suffering, pain. Am I right? That's what we all have in common. If God wanted to find a place where we can connect with a broken world, it would be through brokenness, wouldn't it? That's the one thing we share. In common, it's the one thing that we all we all experience. Some of our the shape of our suffering looks different from person to person. I have lost a wife. You all know that. And for some of you that have lost a wife or a spouse, we have something in common, don't we? 
for those of you that have not lost a spouse, that's not a connection point necessarily, although you're intrigued by it. Many of you have asked me questions about it. So you can learn a lot, but it's not something we have in common. So our suffering, even within the context of brokenness and suffering, what we share with the world um, is unique. So one thing that we all share. It would make sense to me that God would decide to communicate, decide to use us through that avenue, through that venue. I suspect if I were to ask any of you over coffee, you would say, well, yes, you want to be used by the Lord. I bet that's true of almost all of you in here. Uh, a lesson of all suffering. I mean, that's really how, that's how I think about it, <laughs> just being honest with you. And yet our pain, the brokenness that we experience is the one connection point. So if the Lord really wanted to connect us well to the world, what a natural place to do it. What a natural place to do it. I've never, um, I've never been in your shoes and done the things that you've done. But when it comes to pain, I have a little bit of insight there. I've never lost a child. And yet um, there came a time when my first wife, Judy, she was pregnant with my second, Cassie, who's now 32, quite healthy, I might add. And um, one day we had to go to the emergency room because she wasn't early in her pregnancy. She wasn't doing well. And um, so they, I wasn't, back then I wasn't allowed to go back with her. They do a lot more of that today than they did then. And so the doctor, the emergency room doctor came out and said, I'm really sorry to tell you this, but your, uh, your child has died. And um, my child is what? Your child has died. Um, we can't detect a heartbeat. That's why your wife is having trouble. So we're going to start procedures to abort the baby because uh, I didn't know if it was a boy or a girl. Your child is no longer alive. Well, word travels like lightning sometimes. Before I knew it, I had people from our church coming down in droves. And there ended up 20 or 30 down in the emergency room with me. Of course, I'm distraught and numb in shock. I already have a terminally ill wife. I don't need to lose a daughter on top of it or a child on top of it. And um, <clears throat> about two hours later, a different doctor came out, a lady doctor, sat down and introduced herself. Uh, she was an OBGYN, and she said, uh, your wife's going to be fine. Everything's okay. Uh, we're admitting her to the hospital, and she's not coming home. She needs to stay here on bed rest pretty much for the rest of her pregnancy. I'm going, what, what do you mean? And she said, well, we need to protect the baby. And I said, but, but I thought the baby died. She said, oh, gosh, no, your baby's fine. Why would you think that? And I said, well, the emergency room doctor two hours ago came in and told me that her baby had died. And her face turned red, and she just gave me a hug, and she said, I am so sorry. Your baby is fine. And um, he had misdiagnosed it. And what happened was the nurse refused to, uh, to abort, start the whatever the procedure is, I don't even know said, no, not until you get an OBGYN down here. And so two hours later, I found out. So for two hours, I had the trauma of thinking that my child had died. I've not actually lost a child, but every time I see my daughter, I'm reminded of that, that uh, life could have been very different without her and how blessed I am. You get the point? One thing we share in common, it doesn't matter who we meet. It really doesn't matter who we meet. Anywhere in the world is pain, suffering. 
That's the one thing we have in common. It's only a short distance to figure out where that commonality is. Could it be that God's primary way of showcasing his glory is through our suffering? If we want to be used by the Lord, what a great way to connect us to a world. Isn't it? Now, if we choose not to live out our faith with authenticity, we have much to say. We decide, you've heard me talk about grumbling and complaining. That's because that's in Philippians 2. We're going to get to it in a couple weeks. If we grumble and complain, we have nothing to say to a world that's quite well, quite well practiced in grumbling and complaining, aren't they? If we are a divided, fragmented church, and we have hostility in our midst, disunity, we have nothing to say to a world that that's their natural way of living life, is it? If we don't know how to encourage one another and build each other up, we have nothing to say to a world that struggles to survive because they get very little of that, do we? But when we suffer and we live out our faith, we shine. We shine. I want you to think about that while I read this text. This is Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 12. I'm just going to read it all the way to the to, uh, through to verse 26. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Remember, he's in prison. He's suffering. He's in prison. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. I'm in prison to reflect the glory of the Lord, to proclaim this wonderful good news. What's the gospel? The gospel is the fantastic news that the one true living God did not forget us. He came back for us. That's Christmas. He remembered his promise. That's the life of Christ. He made it possible for us to enjoy an eternity with him. That's Easter. That's the good news. He didn't forget us. The former, verse 17, preached Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains or literally so they can increase my beatings, my physical suffering. Makes sense. Why is Paul in prison for sharing the gospel? Well, let's go out and share the gospel. That I'm getting beat even more. That's why they're doing it. But what does it matter? Verse 18. So what? But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Pause for a second. I was raised in a tradition, this may surprise some of you, that if you were Catholic, that is about as close to evil as you could get. And uh, fortunately, through God's grace, lots of study, and I have changed my perspective in lots of ways. This week, we had um, Pastor Appreciation Breakfast at the Women's Resource Center. Thank you very much for that. And uh, several of the pastors were there. We were just having a great time visiting. And so I, was, I met and was visiting with uh, Father Michael Glenn, um, the new Catholic priest up the road, and had a great time. 
at one point we were talking about some of the statistics in the county and how few people there are that go to church and how great the need is what's happening at the Women's Resource Center. And he said, I don't care what our traditions, we need to tell this county about Jesus. Is that good? That is so good. I don't care what our traditions, we need to tell this county about Jesus. That is exactly my heartbeat. That is exactly it. Whether, whether it doesn't matter whether in, from false motives or true, Christ has preached, and because of this, I rejoice. We should never, never speak down from someone who is preaching Christ. Like Paul, I don't care what the motives are. Christ is getting out there. That's what counts. The Holy Spirit can do his wonderful thing anyway, in spite of false motives. And he says, yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Isn't that interesting? I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Is that your hope? That Christ will be exalted whether by life or by death. It's interesting when Judy was so sick at the end and dying, I asked her how she wanted me to pray for her. I expected her to say for healing. She said, no, just that God will glorify himself through me with whatever he decides. It's pretty simple. And uh, I've come to realize that that is a core value of Christianity, that God will glorify himself. I think every morning just about I get up and I say, good morning, Lord. Thanks for another day of life. Figure out how to glorify yourself through me today. Help me to honor you with my life today. Make me a servant after your son David. Just don't let me commit the sins that he did. <laughs> Whether in life or in death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am, if I am to go on living in the body... This will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. How many of you have gotten to a point in life where you just say, Lord, you could take me today and I would be okay with that? I've been there many times. Let me see. You ever been there? Or am I alone? Oh, no, several of you. Right? By far, that's better. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. It's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. After Judy died, my one and three-year-old, the pain was so great, I just longed for the Lord to take me. I just longed for that. And then a friend sat me down, and we read this passage together, and I thought about my one and three-year-old, and I realized that I had a responsibility. That it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. By the way, I feel that way about you. Until the Lord decides to take me home, uh, which could be any day, I'm okay with that. Until that time, it's necessary for me to be here for your benefit. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Are those good words? Just a good way to frame all the values of the gospel in one experience. 
Paul surprises everyone by talking not about the facts of his situation, but about the effects of his situation. What's easier to talk about? What's going on with you or what the Lord is doing through it? What's easier? What's going on with you, right? Isn't that our normal way of of conversation? Oh, man, I'm hurting. Oh, or whatever. You name it, right? As opposed to, look what the Lord is doing through me. So Paul, all the way through, is not concerned in the slightest about his personal discomfort, the chains, the beatings. They're all there. They're all there. None of that. What he's highlighting is, look what the Lord is doing. I suspect if we could sit with him and hear this story personally, and we'll get that chance one day, there's going to be a twinkle in his eye. You should have seen it. You should have seen what God did. How on earth could he get me beat? By the way, in the Corinthian epistles, he calls that um, momentary light afflictions. That's what he calls it. And he goes through the litany of all that's happened to him. The shipwrecks, the number of times he was beat. You know, in in Jewish culture, 40 times equal death, so they beat him 39 times with a rod. One short of death, that way they wouldn't be guilty of uh, murder if he died. Because they followed the law. Okay, 39 times he talks about that. He was stoned and left for dead. I think based on another passage, he probably had died. All these things that happened to him, and he calls that momentary light afflictions in light of the eternal weight of glory. Someday we're going to sit with him and he's going to say, you should have seen it. How the Lord could get me right up to the edge of death and all the people that came to know him because of it. Fantastic words. Just fantastic words. He surprises everyone by talking about the effects of a situation rather than the facts. He is confident because of the results of what's happening. Because of the results. It's more common for us to talk about the practice, what we're going through. And he was focused almost exclusively on the results. Everything he has suffered serves this end of of furthering the gospel. Everything. His sufferings, his imprisonment, his inconveniences. He talks about being insecure. He talks about being mocked and shamed when he's in Athens. He can't speak very well. On and on and on. All these things, they're, they're just minor, minor inconveniences on the road to glory. The amazing part is that the gospel is being spread by worthy and unworthy motives. But to Paul, it doesn't matter. It simply doesn't matter. He's almost got this attitude of bring it. Bring it on. No beating too severe. No prison too dark or deep or dank or cold. No shipwreck too scary. Nothing so great compared to the furtherance of the gospel. Boy, I wish we could all have that, and myself included, have that attitude. Is there anything so great that would keep us from seeing a loved one come to know Christ? Is there any suffering so great that we wouldn't be willing to go through it to see a neighbor turn to the Lord? We say that in theory, But then when we get into the middle of suffering, how many of us default toward, ouch, look at me and what's hurting or what I'm going through. That's the normal thing to do in a broken world. That's why 
If we stand up and we live out our faith in the midst of suffering, you know what? We shine. We shine. We, we make everyone stop and look and say, oh my, I wish I could do it that way. I wish I could do it that way. So then, um, and then right in the middle of that, he, he shows this transition where he's moving away from what God is doing in him and he moves toward what God is doing on behalf of the Philippians. The second part of that. It's very easy for us to miss both of those in our lives. What is God doing through me and what, I mean, what is God doing in me for the benefit of others? And what is he doing through me for the benefit of others? So he's not focusing on his own predicament. He, had, he just showed how his predicament had been used for the spread of the gospel. But instead he focuses on how his predicament will be used for the best interest of the Philippians. You ever think that way? What God is taking me through right now, it may be for your benefit probably is boy does that require a change of mindset it does doesn't it the suffering that i'm going through right now is for your benefit i mean i still reflect back on job the words i hope never to hear or never be said about me when job says to satan have you uh considered my servant job no one like him in all the earth he's the most faithful person there is what do you think of that? Divine bragging. I don't mind letting the Lord know from time to time he can brag about Tim Glasgow. <laughs> Dave Huntsinger, hand it out. You know? Let it, but not about me. Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him on the earth. No one. And what does Satan say? Well, of course, you got him protected. Remove your protection and you'll see a different person. He goes, all right, have at it. And a year later, Job is shaking his fist at God. The pain is so intense and so great. So what does God say to Job? Well, it wasn't my fault. Satan did it. No, he doesn't. He said, would you really annul my judgment? This was my decision to let this happen. By the way, I'm showcasing you to all of the heavenly hosts as well as your friends. Think about that. Your suffering is for our benefit. And not just ours alone. Paul says in the Corinthian epistles, the angels long to look. You get the picture of they're looking over the edge and they're watching what's happening. They, they can't believe it. How grace is so powerful from the Lord that even when he's shaking, when Job is shaking his fist at God, he's held up in the New Testament as a character of patience. Have you considered the patience of Job so for those of you that have friends that are going through intense pain and their faith is wandering, of course, that's normal. God is plenty big to handle that. He has a lot of practice with people that wander away. He's got lots of them. And a bunch of us right here in this room. <laughs> that's how big God is. Don't be afraid. Don't worry about that. That's what pain does. And there's a lot of people watching when he displays his grace, everybody goes, wow, I want to belong to a God like that, that shows that kind of grace. Kind of gives a new light to suffering, doesn't it? A different perspective. He sets down all the alternatives facing him. 
Courage versus shame. Life or death. Depart to depart or stay and suffer. But he's convinced that he will remain for their benefit. He now turns to what I consider to be the heart of the gospel. He turns from his own situation to direct the Philippians on how they should live out their faith. Look with me in verse 27. Whatever happens, by the way, this is the first command in the book. Whatever happens, as citizens of heaven, live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So what does it mean to be a citizen of heaven? It means to live out your faith. That's what it means. And we should continue to strive as a church to create a culture, a culture where we can live out our faith and we can fail and it's okay. And we're still going to help people. Just like Psalm 145 says, He lifts up those who have fallen down and He holds those who are bowed down. Or Jesus said the opposite. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. We should continue to create that kind of culture. Because guess what? If the world looks at us and we fail and we help each other, where do they get that? Where do they find it? It's spectacular. Whatever happens, as citizens of heaven live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together with one accord for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, that is, if they don't believe. It's proof to an unbelieving world that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved. It's proof that you will be saved. You want proof? Let the suffering happen. It's proof that you will be saved. And that by God, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. And here the verb, it has been granted, is the verb for the word grace, which we don't have a verb for that in English. It's part of God's grace, not only to believe in his name, but to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw that I had, and now here that I still have, and you might add, with the same results. Whether in pretense or in honesty, Christ will be proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. In this I rejoice. Could it be that suffering is God's primary way of showcasing his glory? to a world that understands suffering and brokenness. So the first thing he does here is he begins to look at what happens when we suffer from the outside. That's really what this is all talking about. Standing firm together, we as a church, we're standing firm in one spirit. We're striving together with one accord for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way. We are standing firm. Same language he used in Ephesians, tough there, about suffering about unity. So what he's talking about here is maintaining unity. Listen to these words. They just come flowing out one right after the other. I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together with one accord for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Don't be afraid of them. This is a sign that you're being saved because it has been granted to suffer since you're going through the same struggle that I have. We should stand firm. Same command as Ephesians 6, stand firm. But then he goes on in chapter 2, the first four verses, and talks about, now let's move internally. How do we maintain unity inside of our church? And look at this. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, 
if any tenderness and compassion, if those things are true, then what? Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in the spirit and of one mind. You hear the words just flow out of them? Unity. Same message in Ephesians. Unity. In Ephesians, he says, be diligent, work very hard to preserve the unity that has been brought about by Christ. Work very hard. And then he goes on, just in case you missed it. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. These four opening statements, if you have any encouragement, the four if statements, you have to trust me unless you've had Greek, but these are all reflecting objective realities that are true. If this is true, and it is, that's the expected answer. They are demonstrating the reality that we live with all the time. The objective reality that we live with that no one else can see. They haven't experienced it. How many of you have experienced encouragement from being united with Christ? Even just once. Let me see. Okay. How many of you have found comfort from his love? That grace, which seems so elusive, right? It's there one moment, gone the next. There one moment, gone the next. It just comes and goes. It's, it's hard to define it. It's hard to capture it, but yet we realize what it is. How about any common sharing in the Spirit? Every Christian should raise their hand here, right? We share a common experience. How about any tenderness and compassion? Have you come here and found tenderness and compassion? See what I mean? If these things are true, then live it out. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, by being unified. He didn't say make my joy complete by getting out there. He says, no, no, no. Complete my joy by being of the same mind. So that's like eight times now he said be unified in the span of about eight verses. You'd think it was important. The Philippians were to be united not only against the common foe, but against the suffering that comes from following Christ. And it is going to come. It's going to come. So what does this tell us? Number one, Paul subordinates his own personal interests for the gospel's advance. That should be our heart and passion. He subordinates his own personal interest and comfort for the advance of the gospel. The good news of what God has done. He also subordinates his own personal interests for the best interest of the Philippians. That should be a hallmark of BCC. When people talk about our church, do they talk about, there's a church that's caring. There's a church that's sacrificial. There's a church that gives to others no matter the sacrifice. Is that how they see it? I guarantee you, if that is a characteristic, people can't run away from it. They're going to be drawn to it. They can't help it because they don't experience that anywhere in the world. He models true partnership in the gospel. And what is it about? Sacrifice for others or putting others first. That's what partnership is all about. I am a lot more motivated to be faithful if I know that you are willing to sacrifice for me. I am. If I feel alone, 
That's not, I'm, I'm not as motivated. By God's grace, I feel that sacrifice for many of you. This should be our resolve to protect our unity regardless of what happens. That should be our, that's the one thing we have that the world cannot see, can't experience is unity. How has it expressed itself? Again, by loving others, serving others, living out our faith. We should be very diligent to protect that unity no matter what. That's what the world looks like. When I was in Germany, short story, we had six guys from a unit in the military that were part of our ministry, and I happened to notice that uh, five of them had ostracized one. So they didn't sit with him. They wouldn't hang with him. He was all by himself. So I went to the five, and I said, all right, what's going on? And they said, well, he went out and got drunk the other night. Okay, so why are you over here? He embarrassed us in our unit. And I said, okay, what would the other guys in the unit think if uh, when he got drunk, you five were the first to run and help him? He got in trouble with the MPs. You were the first to be there to get him out of, out of uh, jail, so to speak, and to take care of him. What would the rest of the guys in the, in the unit think? And they thought about it. One of the guys said, well, they've never seen that. They would, that would mean something to them. All right, then. If one of us falls, let's surround him or her. Let's don't ostracize him, kick him out. It's just the opposite. Psalm 45, 145 says, that should be our result. So I'll leave you with this, a story and a question. The question is, are you a consumer of our unity or a contributor? Do you make unity happen by focusing on the effects of your suffering? Or are you a consumer you take out of that by complaining about things that happen to you? Where are you? I mentioned this book last week, a little book by John Stott. Um, the last thing he wrote before he died, in fact, the last chapter, as I lay down my pen for the last time at the age of 88, and he died right after he wrote it. It's his last words. I love this little book. I remember vividly the major question that perplexed me as a young Christian. It was this. What is God's purpose for his people? Granted, we had been converted, but what next? So what? Of course, we knew the famous statements of the Westminster Shorter Catechism that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We also toyed with the yet briefer statement of only five words, such as love God and love your neighbor. Uh, but neither seemed wholly satisfactory. So I want to share with you where my mind has come to rest as I approach the end of my pilgrimage on earth. It is this. God wants his people to become like Christ. For Christ-likeness is the will of God for the people of God. Christ-likeness. Now, what does that mean? It means becoming a true human. The moment you entered into a faith with Jesus and the Spirit came, you started that journey to recover what was lost. You become more of who you are. Ben, you become more Ben. And you know what? I like Ben. And I like what you're becoming. I can say that about every one of you. You're becoming more you because you're becoming more like Christ. You're becoming more generous, more compassionate, more concerned, more passionate, more sacrificial, more available, more at rest, more joyful. 
You could go on and on and on. All the things that God created you for. That's what it means to be like Christ. He concluded at the end of his life, that's the goal. It's Christ-likeness. For we are being conformed into the image of Christ. So are you a consumer? Do you take from the unity that's a gift here? Or do you contribute to it? What if the purpose of your suffering is that God, it's God's primary way to showcase his glory to a world that that's what they understand? Let's pray. Father, we are delighted to be your children. We recognize, Lord, the privilege that that is. We are thankful, Lord God, for your holiness. We are thankful for your wonderful, passionate, sacrificial love for us. Lord, thank you for, uh, for literally moving heaven and earth, doing everything within your power, Lord, to draw our attention back to you so that we can become more like your son, more like we were created to be all along. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.